0: Oh Father, thank you for sending into the world the glorious Christ who is our hope. Thank you that you initiated redemption and that Father we have been brought into fellowship with you and with your son and with the spirit and we thank you for that. And I pray that Father as we plunge into the into the beautiful book of Colossians that as we plunge into the depths of things that, Lord, sometimes are difficult for us to fully understand. I pray that, Father, you would remove distractions from our minds and our hearts, thinking about what is to come this afternoon, Father, that we would be uh, focused upon your word, that we would hear your word, that we would understand your word, that we would reflect and meditate upon your word so that we might be faithful people who apply your word to our life. Father, help us uh, even now, Lord, that it would be a time that would glorify you These are your words, and we want to hear you, and we ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the morning's message is The Glorious Gospel of Christ. The Glorious Gospel of Christ, and I would invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and if you can stand with me for the reading of the Word of God, I want to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. It says this, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may have a seat. What is the best way to tell when something is false, when it's not authentic, when it is counterfeit? Well, I learned a lesson a few years ago which helped me answer that question a little bit. When upon arriving at the airport in Yangon, Myanmar, which is in Southeast Asia, uh, the customs official signaled for me to come on over to him, so I gave this official my passport and my documentation for him to look over it. And after a couple of minutes of looking over my passport and my documentation, he asked me uh, for the customs fee, which we were already anticipating as a team at that time was going to be $20. So pulled out the $20 bill, gave it to the gentleman. And then... For a couple of minutes, at least, he proceeded to inspect my $20 bill to see if it was genuine and authentic. And uh, he felt the texture of the $20 bill. They even had these little lamps in each of their desks to put the, the money underneath those lamps and inspecting the print on those particular bills to make sure that they were genuine. And then the last thing that he did was pull out... A $20 bill. He had a bunch of them, but he pulled one out, put it on his desk, and put mine next to it and started comparing my $20 bill to his. Uh, after a couple of minutes of this, of course, he let me go. Thankfully, those are scary places to go to in Southeast Asia. So he let me go, and I moved on. And, um, you know, that particular experience stuck with me. It stuck with me as, um, as a, 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 a way for us Even in the case of money, to be able to um, find out if something is counterfeit or if it's not authentic or false, one thing that you could do is compare it with the real thing. And that's what this gentleman did. And I thought about that particular experience, that occasion, and it reminded me of what Paul is doing in the opening section of the book of Colossians chapter 1. Um, Last week, uh, we saw that the gospel in Colossae was under attack. The sufficiency of Christ was under attack. Um, I told you that Paul had written the letter of Colossians to instruct and exhort the Colossians concerning a a sort of false, syncretistic religious system. But Paul does not start his letter by explicitly refuting the false teaching. What he does instead is that he begins by reminding these Colossian believers of the glorious gospel of Christ. That they have the real thing. In fact, all they have to do is look at how their lives and the lives of others have changed for them to see the transforming power and the validity of the gospel that they have. They have the real thing. Why settle for counterfeits? So in essence, one of the great things that Paul does at the beginning of this letter and other letters that he writes is to show or expose, rather, a counterfeit teaching or, expo- or um, expose a particular sin in the lives of a particular church, particular congregation, by showing the real thing. And in this case, he shows them the glorious gospel of Christ. That if they have the real thing, why should they settle for counterfeits if they have that wonderful gospel that they have witnessed themselves has transformed them and the lives of many all around the world you know this happens to us in the christian life does it not initially the gospel of christ is so precious so glorious to us at conversion we witness a radical change uh, in our lives from the inside out the gospel is is marvelous and beautiful to us But over the years, beloved, we fall into the danger of of forgetting that the same gospel that is mighty to save is the same gospel that is able to sanctify us and to make us holy as we submit to God's word by His Spirit. And we succumb to other counterfeit influences. Things, extremes like legalism on the one hand or libertarianism on the other hand. Neither of those, legalism or libertarianism, is Christ-centered sanctification. We succumb to rituals, to philosophical fortresses, unbiblical ways of thinking about the world, which are not in God's word. And we begin to substitute Christ and his word for other things which are not the real thing. And at the end of the day, they are not going to lead to growth and vitality in the Christian life. And as the years pass, Jesus and his word are no longer sufficient for us. This is why we need to hear the message of these opening verses in all of the book of Colossians, because they remind us of the wonder and the beauty of the glory of Christ, His glorious gospel. The dominant theme in verses three through eight of this opening section is one long sentence, verses three through eight, is Thanksgiving for the gospel's powerful work in the lives of these Colossians. And in the process of Paul giving thanks to God for his work in the lives of these believers, he reminds them of the gospel's authentic, transforming work so that they will not fall prey to false teaching. It is a wonderful thing that he does here. But what we see in these verses 3 through 8 are three wonderful truths, wonderful truths in Paul's thanksgiving that motivate us to rejoice and stand firm in the glorious gospel. We see these wonderful truths here. But before that, I want to ask you this this morning and challenge you as we work through some of these verses. Do you relish in the gospel of Christ? Do you relish in the gospel of Christ? Do you daily rejoice in what God has done in your life and the lives of others? Take it a step further. Are you living mindful that all you have is Christ and His Word and He and His Word is all that you need. He is sufficient and His Word is sufficient for your life. Would that characterize you? Because as we look at these verses, verses 3 through 8, I want you to be reminded of our great God. And to look back at your life and see what he's accomplished in your life and the amazing benefits and blessings that you have in Christ, beloved, so that we would discard worldly thinking and be completely satisfied with Christ. Amen? I want us to be challenged in that particular way this morning. The first truth that Paul highlights here in the flow of his thanksgiving is the glorious person of the gospel. The glorious person of the gospel. And I want you to see this in verse 3. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Notice, it doesn't matter what Paul's concerns were when he wrote to various churches, with one or two exceptions, his pattern constantly was to express and thank God for his brethren and the work that he was doing in these churches. He had the option, in many of these letters, including Colossians, right off the bat to cut to the chase and deal with his concerns. But what Paul would masterfully do was first and foremost affirm the work of God in the lives of people, and in particular these congregations. And as a side note, this is a great lesson for us, isn't it? You know, uh, many times we are so fixated on the issues and the problems that people have, And maybe the problems that our church might have. And we forget to be pointing out the evidences of God's grace amongst us. That God is working in people's lives. You ought to pray that way. Lord, help me today to identify evidences of God's grace in the lives of my fellow brethren in this church. And he will do that. Remember that at the end of the day, God is doing a mighty work in the hearts and lives of people, right? Despite their sin and despite our sin, we can always find, beloved, something to give thanks for in somebody's life. Always. Paul was a thankful man like that. He was always thankful. But he was so, because listen, Paul's focus wasn't on people in and of themselves. He was focused upon the God who worked in and through people. And so this particular thanksgiving, uh, he directs his thanks to God the Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says we give thanks to God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying always for you. As often as Paul prays for these believers. Continually he thanks God the Father for them. And I love this. I love who he directs his prayers and his thanksgiving to. I want to call your attention to something so significant here. And that is the prevalence of Paul's mention of God here as the Father. Beautiful. Notice at the end of chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then in chapter 1 verse 3, Paul says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you look a few verses down, In chapter 1, verse 12, in the midst of praying for the Colossian believers, Paul encourages them to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then he expands upon that in verse 13. For He, the Father, that's the antecedent from verse 12, He, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In whom, in the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in verses 15 and following, he he expands upon the supremacy of the Son of God. But this repeated reference, beloved, to the Father is very significant for us. And I want us to think about this. I don't want us to miss the significance of this. Because first of all, it is significant because right off the bat... Paul calls attention to the special relationship that God the Father has with God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is deliberate here. Because as preeminent and as supreme as the Son of God will be presented in his letter, as the object of the believer's faith and trust, listen, Paul does not want them to forget the fact that everything that Christ is for them is anchored... In the special, eternal, precious, intimate relationship that the Father has with the Son of God. Beautiful. So He is referred to as our Father in verse 2. And the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. It is also significant because God the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And in verses 12 and 13 he expands upon the redemption that god has initiated listen we have been brought into that intimate relationship with god by grace through faith because god the father has sent the son into the world to be the savior of the world that's what first john chapter 4 verse 4 says it is only because god the father has sent the son that he is our lord He is only our Lord because He's our Savior. He saved us from our sins. Therefore, He's our Lord and our Savior. That's why Paul calls Him God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he calls Jesus. He calls Jesus our Lord. He is our Lord, Jesus Christ. How? By virtue of the fact that God the Father sent Him to be the Redeemer of sinners such as us, beloved. So there is only one Lord And the reason why there is only one Lord is because God the Father sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ, and declared Him to be Lord and Christ. He declared Him to be Lord and Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 36, at the conclusion of one of the greatest sermons preached by Peter, Peter says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, in light of everything that I have said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, he says. God the Father has made him both Lord and Christ. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul has just talked about Christ's humiliation in Philippians chapter 2. And then in chapter 2 verse 9 of Philippians, he says this, For this reason God highly exalted Him, that is Christ, and has bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, right? To the glory of God the Father. God the Father put forth His Son, beloved. I want you to think about that. God the Father is the divine initiator of our redemption from before the foundation of the world. I find that astounding. That God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ sent His eternal Son, Jesus, into the world to redeem those who belong to Him. That is something to give thanks to God for. Amen? That He's our Father. And because He sent His Son, we can now enter into this intimate relationship with God and when we enter his presence, we too can call him Father, as the eternal Son of God has referred to him as Father. Wow! That is amazing. I stand amazed that an infinitely holy God would be mindful of a speck of dust like me. Do you? So that now because of the Son of God's death and His resurrection, by faith I can now enter into the eternal fellowship and relationship which they have shared and call God my Father. The next time you pray and you refer to God as Father, think about that. He initiated that glorious salvation and redemption. This is what makes the gospel of Christ glorious, beloved. This is why Paul always gives thanks for his fellow believers because it is a mind-boggling reality for him. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is not just using terminology here that means nothing. Right? He's very purposeful. He's not just throwing out terms here to sound good. They point to something glorious about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen. If this doesn't motivate us to have a heart of gratitude, the person of the glorious gospel, that God the Father initiated redemption on your behalf, so that now because of the atoning death of Christ, which you have trusted in, now you are able to call God Father. I don't know what else is going to drive you to gratitude. Wow! That we have hope beyond this life because of that. Beloved, the gospel is glorious. Because it reveals how this infinitely holy God was mindful of a sinner just like you and I. That because of his great love for you as a sinner, he sent his beloved son into the world to die in your place for your sins. But I gotta tell you this, redemption is ultimately not even about you and I. It's not. Our redemption was God's chosen means by which He receives glory and thanksgiving from us. And that is why Paul burst forth into thanksgiving for these believers. Because God the Father has chosen them in Christ. And the indwelling Holy Spirit lives within them, see. And he can't do anything else but to give God thanks and express His thanksgiving in continual prayers of praise to God the Father. What a wonderful reality that is. So in encouraging these believers, Paul directs their attention to the glorious gospel by expressing thanksgiving to the person, God the Father, who has initiated redemption for these believers. And because God the Father made that initiative to send His Son, we have a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? What a glorious person of the gospel is God. What a glorious person. Secondly, I want you to notice the glorious power of the gospel. Not only the glorious person of the gospel, but the glorious power of the gospel. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is why the motivation for Paul is to give thanks. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Stop right there. Epaphras has reported to Paul that the gospel has done an amazing work in the lives of these believers and this would motivate anyone to give thanks. And so what Paul does is give thanks and he's motivated to give thanks to God because of the gospel's transforming power in the lives of these Colossian believers. That's something for us to give thanks for as well, right? When you look back at your life, and the person that you were, you know, recently I came across a longtime friend, and we started interacting after 20 years of not seeing one another, and we started interacting. He says, "Campus, little snot nose campus, look at you, look at you. I took offense at the snot nose remark, but that's what he said, so I'm telling you. He said, dude! You are so different after 20 years of not seeing you. I remember you and the struggles that you had. I said, brother, I still have some of those same struggles. Maybe I've grown in some capacity, but some of those struggles are still there. He says, but God has changed you. God has transformed you. There's a difference in your life. I can see the gospel's power in your life. And it's true, right? For all of us. You survey your life and you look back at your life or the life of your beloved brethren that you've known for years and you could see evidences of that change that God has brought about in your life. Amen? We see that. Well, Epaphras has reported to Paul some evidences of their conversion. And Paul is motivated to give thanks, in particular for three virtues that they are fleshing out, according to the testimony of Epaphras, in their lives. Faith and love and hope. These are all going to be subpoints under your second major point. The gospel has worked in them. And the power is being manifested in them. in the fact that there's faith and love and hope being evidenced in their life. So first of all, I want you to notice that Paul is motivated to give thanks because they have received the gospel by faith. Verse 4 says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Beloved, Epaphras has told us that when the gospel was preached to you, you responded with faith in Christ Jesus. And that was in the past, of course. But they're still in the faith. They're still trusting in Jesus. And he affirms them. And that motivates Paul to thank God. You know why that motivates Paul, beloved? Because Paul wrote concerning the fact that faith is a miracle. It's a supernatural gift of God, is it not? Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 1-3, that the unbeliever, a person outside of Christ, the non-Christian, is spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins. And a spiritually dead person can't respond to spiritual stimuli, right? So who has to do the miracle? God has to do the miracle. Faith in Christ is a miracle. Otherwise, a spiritually dead person can't respond to spiritual stimuli. God must do an amazing work in the life of that person. And that's what God does. Paul gives thanks because the miracle of faith in Christ is how the gospel has been applied to them personally, and it is a work of God in their hearts and lives. Now, you and I know that there is so much confusion about what faith is today, right? So much confusion. And as I wrestled with this passage, I felt like we needed to think about this for a few minutes. Some of the common misconceptions about faith, because I think it it impacts the way that we live as Christians. What our view of what faith is. And even more importantly, as we think about evangelism and sharing our faith with others. I think that we need to be clear about what the biblical definition of faith is. Otherwise, beloved, we're not going to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel. Faith has become such a vague and ambiguous word or concept in our culture, has it not? It has crept into the church as well, this ambiguity, this vagueness. As we look at the world around us, we can marvel because people view faith as a sort of primitive pastime. There are the skeptics, for instance, who view faith as outdated, Faith is for the uneducated, who don't have any rational or scientific proof or substance for what they believe. So therefore they throw, chuck it up and say, I have faith. With no proof or substance, says the skeptic. In, view, in the view of the skeptic, people who have faith are simply forcing themselves to believe or have faith in the unbelievable. That which is untrue, unreal, or unproven. Faith is blind and irrational in their perspective. People of faith are caricatured as people who are enamored with non existing realities, such as the existence of God, a heaven and hell, and eternal things. Things of the future which will never happen anyway. So stop it with the faith thing, says the skeptic. God is not even a reality. Faith is for the uneducated, for the irrational. For other people, they like faith. But for them, faith, faith is a very vague idea. It is an undefined and sort of nebulous concept. Faith has become a catchword for positive thinkers. Believing yourself, people say, right? It is common for people to refer to themselves as people of faith, but when you push them on that particular faith and what exactly they have faith in, largely they have no substance behind that or any reference to God whatsoever. Faith is such, just a word that people throw around these days with no substance or definition behind it. Faith in religion or philosophy is also an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? People believe in all kinds of things in religion and philosophy from believing that we are descendants of lower life forms like bugs and monkeys and trying to explain that through scientific data to the fact that humanity and creation is a result of some mass explosion that nobody can really explain. It just happened, right? It just happened. And somehow that object becomes valid for us to trust in. Or to believing that one day we will morph from being human to entering the next world as some animal or even an insect. People believe these things, you know. I went to Southeast Asia and interacting with people who were Buddhists. And a couple of those guys, after talking to them and and debating with them, they themselves said, you know what, at the end of the day, we don't even know if that's really true. That's just a way that we've been raised. People believe all kinds of vain philosophies out there, beloved. But to be a Christian, understanding the nature of saving faith is quite crucial, isn't it? Because faith is essential to becoming a Christian. That's why Hebrews 11.6 says this, For without faith it is impossible to please God. So then the answer is, what is faith then? What is faith? Well, any effort to define what saving faith is should start with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I want you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. The writer of Hebrews, his whole point in the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. Christ is better. And in chapter 11, he's going to talk about what faith is and then give a bunch of examples of genuine faith and what faith does. And he says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to list a bunch of individuals in the history of the Bible who were willing to pay the price for their faith, who were willing to put their actions behind their profession of faith. Well, according to this verse, faith is assurance. The idea is a firm confidence, confidence. A firm confidence of future realities. That's what hope points points to. Future realities. Things that we can't completely see now, but we're trusting in God to deliver. Firm confidence. And notice, unwavering conviction is the idea there. The conviction is this unwavering conviction of things which for the most part we're not able to see in the here and now, but we're absolutely confident about those things. So faith is sure confidence. Unwavering conviction. We're not talking, beloved, about the world's wishful thinking, are we? Concerning the future. I.e., I really hope that this happens, like my Buddhist friends. I really hope that that happens. We're not talking about wishful thinking. We believe in future realities which we know as believers, as Bible-believing Christians, that are absolutely certain and will happen without a shadow of a doubt. Amen? Amen? Why can we be certain? Why firm confidence? Why unwavering conviction? Well, it's not because we have faith in the fact that we have faith, right? That the future will turn out well. No. Even believing in yourself because you have faith is not the answer because faith in itself doesn't save if the object is the wrong object of faith, right? The fact that you have faith does not save you, beloved. Faith is sure confidence and unwavering certainty about those things hoped for in the future. Listen to me. Precisely because they are tied to the object of our faith who is almighty who? God. God. That's why we can have sure confidence and unwavering certainty because the object of our faith is God. That's why we can be confident. Listen to Hebrews 11 verse 6. Right there on your same page that you're on. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God, listen, must believe that He is. And that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Faith for the believer is trusting in the fact that God exists. And that because of his righteous and faithful character, he will keep his promises, beloved. Because they are grounded upon the redeeming work of the exalted Christ, right? Whom he has set forth as Lord and Savior of the world. He will keep his promises. We put our trust in God, we know it will happen because God, who is real and who's infinitely reliable, has promised those things and He will deliver, right? He will deliver. God is faithful and we can trust Him, beloved. That's why we can have sure, firm confidence, unwavering conviction because of the object of our faith, because it stands on or falls. Those promises stand or fall on the character of a faithful, sovereign king of the universe who is almighty to carry everything out. Amen? He's more than able to carry those promises out, beginning with the fact that he already sent his son, Jesus, into the world to redeem you in fulfillment of many promises in the Old Testament, right? And if he could perform the greatest act of love and sacrifice, and having sent His Son into the world to die and rise from the dead, surely, surely He will be faithful to His promises and the culmination of our hope. Amen? More than able to do that. So faith is a confident trust, a life lived under the conviction of things to come, which we cannot completely see now, but which we know are rooted in God's faithfulness, beginning with the fact that his son has died and risen, that we would have hope who previously had no hope. So faith is more, beloved, than simply agreeing with some facts in a mental sense. Much more than that. In defining faith, the great systematic theologian, Louis Burkhoff, saw three elements of genuine saving faith. Listen to this. One, genuine saving faith contains an intellectual element, notitia, which is the understanding or the comprehending of truth in a mental sense. You hear truth and you understand it. It also contains, secondly, an emotional element, a census, which is the conviction and the affirmation of that truth that you understood from the heart. Not only do you know the truth mentally, but it affects your whole heart. And there's conviction of sin regarding those particular truths. The whole being is engaged now. Thirdly, it contains a volitional element, fiducia, which is a determination of the will to obey the truth. What Paul refers to in Romans 1 as the obedience of faith in response to the gospel being proclaimed. So notice the whole circle. If you have faith, it is not enough to give mere intellectual assent, to understand some truth, some facts. Or to even take it a step further and feel and display some emotion without repentance from your sin. You must go through all the way with obedience and surrender of self in exchange for Christ and God's provision in Christ for your sins. That's the full circle. That's why... If you've been reading the letter of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3 and following, Paul begins in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 with this, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. That being our identity, that we've been raised up with Christ, we should set our minds on the things where Christ is, and be driven, in the rest of that chapter now, to holiness and obedience. See? That's the volition of the will that should lead to obedience and a surrendering of self. Genuine faith, beloved, leads to obedience. Faith, genuine saving faith, works. If I can say it that way genuine saving faith leads to obedience and good works no longer for your glory no longer so that you may be accepted before God there's only one resume that pleases God and that's Jesus's resume right but now good works for the glory of God for the glory of God Just like Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. He affirms them and gives thanks for them because they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They turn from their sins volitionally and they embrace Christ. They turn from idols to worship the true God. So genuine saving faith leads to obedience, beloved. It's not just a mere um, affirmation of some things that you in the past heard or you understood of some facts in a mental sense. There's a life transformation, right? That should show itself in our lives. You know something else about saving faith? Saving faith will be willing to pay the price for following Christ and serving Him, right? Right? you will be willing to pay the price for following Christ as in the case of our early Christian brethren in the book of Acts who were willing to pay the price for their faith. They were beaten and persecuted and maligned and ostracized and ridiculed, but they were fully surrendered, fully surrendered as an expression of their faith to doing good works and serving the Lord amidst their difficulties. There may come a time in this country very soon, beloved, where it will be shown whether your profession of faith is real. And you may get persecuted, or your children will be persecuted. I tell my kids that all the time. Kids, you're going to be growing up in a different world. Where your profession of faith is going to get tested. And potentially you could get thrown in jail. For expressing allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Everything that He has just said, including faith. Salvation is all a work of God done for spiritually dead people. Listen, beloved. Faith is not a work and has nothing to do with our works. Amen? Acceptance before God is by grace through faith in Christ. We can't help ourselves. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to be accepted before God. Not works, not human merit, not kind deeds, not deeds of kindness toward other people, not charitable deeds. You can't get to heaven someday as a humanitarian and show your resume to Almighty God and say, Look at all the charitable deeds that I've done, God. Let me into your heaven. He's going to say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Right? You will not be able to show God any resume of good works. The only resume, beloved, which impressed God was that of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And if you are an unbeliever this morning and you have not given your life to Christ, what God requires of you is that you believe in the gospel of Christ. He died for your sins and He rose from the dead. And He calls you to repent, to turn from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in the gospel means to believe in Christ and the righteousness of Christ. His perfect life, His death for your sins, His resurrection. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith in Christ alone, not on the basis of any human merit or works. None. But listen to me. Though salvation is not based upon our works... Genuine saving faith produces good works, does it not? Produces good works. Because in the same passage in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, For we, believers, are His workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works or unto good works, that we would walk in them. God prepared those works beforehand, that we would walk in them, see. So we are not saved on the basis of our works, beloved. Well, we're to be doing good works for the glory of God. The true believer with saving faith, genuine faith, will obey. So listen, where good deeds are absent as the pattern in the life of a person, or a professing believer, there may not exist genuine faith. If there is no pattern of good works, of holiness in your life, And more importantly than that, if your affections are driven toward holiness and to doing good for the glory of God and loving your brethren, as we're going to talk about, you may not be in Christ. For a living faith is a faith that works, right? Because the Spirit of God lives within us, empowering us to put away sin and empowering us to do good deeds, beloved. You see why Paul gives thanks to God the Father for the Colossians' faith? See, we have diminished saving faith so much down to its bare bones in Christianity and even in our evangelistic efforts. We ought to be evangelizing this way. Saving faith. Saving faith should drive us to evangelize in this way for people to embrace the person and the work of Christ as the greatest treasure. Right? The pearl of great price. The fountain of living waters the bread of life, the light of the world. We ought to be exalting Jesus in our evangelism so that people would realize that they need to set aside every little, with a little g, every God in their own life, including the greatest God of self, and see the satisfying, majestic Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who is able to satisfy in this life and more importantly, beloved, in the life to come. That should be part of our evangelism. It's not just a decision. Faith is not just a decision that keeps you from hell. It's not just intellectual assent or a temporary emotional response without heart and life change. It's not just getting Christ's benefits without delighting in His person, if you want to put it that way. We can't want His gifts and yet not love the giver of the gifts. And above all, listen to this. Faith impacts our battle with sin, does it not? not. It impacts our battle with sin. Our battle against the idols of worldly thinking and money and the idol of sex and worldliness, which he's going to address with the Colossians, of empty philosophy and vain ritual devoid of heart, of the keeping of rules for the purpose of some spiritual elitism in the church and acceptance before God, devoid of heart and devoid of Christ. No. Genuine faith with its eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, sets aside those idols, right? And worldly thinking. When God opens our eyes, beloved, to believe the truth about Christ, nothing in this world, no matter how bad it gets, matters more than pleasing our Heavenly Father, right? Nothing matters more. For those of us who are believers, like Paul, we should give thanks today. For the glorious gospel by which you have been raised from spiritual death, beloved. If it wasn't for God granting you faith to believe in Christ and be restored to a right relationship with God, you would have no hope. None. No hope. Once you and I were enemies of God, under His wrath. But because of his divine initiative to save us in Christ, we now exist in intimate relationship with him, with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and dwelt by the beautiful illuminator, the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful privilege that is. So Paul is motivated to give thanks for the transforming power of the gospel, not only because Epaphras has reported about their faith, but listen, also because he has shared with Paul how they love one another. These believers love one another. So the 2nd subpoint sub-point is this. Paul is motivated to give thanks because they practice love for one another. He says in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Epaphras reports that these Colossian believers were expressing love for one another. Love is prevalent in the book of Colossians. Love, listen, are the hands and the feet of our faith. Expressed love gives substance to to genuine faith. We show that in the way that we love one another. Faith is never stagnant or sterile. Faith is always active in works of love. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. So a genuine believer will desire, and as a pattern of his life, practice love for people beginning with his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and extending to the unbelieving world, right? As a pattern, that is what it will characterize a genuine believer. This is in contrast to what characterizes the world, right? We live in a world full of hatred. All you got to do is turn on the news to hear of all the hateful latest crimes. But listen, outright hatred is not the greatest counterpart to Christ-like biblical love. All right? The greater enemy of Christ-like kind of love is the counterfeit so-called love that is so prevalent in our culture. A so-called love masked... In subtle acceptance of sexual deviance, prostitution, pornography, fornication, adultery, and calling those things loving expressions and true sexual freedom and loving expression. And that is love. A so called love in our culture in deception who tells our youth today that pleasure-seeking and the exploitation of one another to fulfill their sinful desires is the way to go. Go for the gusto, get everything you can get out of that person. That's what the culture is screaming at our kids, right? Explicitly and implicitly. Selfishness and exploitation, beloved, in our culture is masked as virtue. And people call that love. What it really is is lust is it not? Evil desire, evil desire, not love. In our culture there exists a mass destructive so-called love which tells us that tolerance of all religions is the way to go and is the way and every religion leads to god. And it is unloving to tell anybody That there's absolute truth and that there's only one way. That there's a black or white. That there's a heaven or hell. That there's light and there's darkness. That is wrong. You're not a very loving person if you talk about absolute truth. That Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. That is very unloving. That's not a very loving thing to say in our popular culture, right? In our culture, there's this this dismantling of God's design for marriage. And that's okay. Because after all, couples of the same sex love one another. Who are you to tell people of the same sex that they can't marry each other? They love one another. You're not a very loving person if you point them to the ultimate authority who defines marriage, who is God. Since when did God acquiesce his role as a sovereign king of the universe who, de- who defines for us what marriage is between a man and a woman. Since when did that happen? It's unloving for you to speak that way though, right? Right? We're told that if Christians really love their neighbor, then Christians would understand the value of allowing a woman to have a choice as to whether or not to keep a baby. I read a testimony of this recently, a lady who's giving testimony. She says, you know, if Christians really, really were loving people, then they would allow a woman like me and others to have the freedom to choose whether we should have our baby or not. It's not very loving to tell us whether we should have a baby or not. Allowing her to have a choice to keep her baby and not murder it is wrong, right? Listen, beloved, biblical Christ-like love is different, is it not? It is motivated by the infinite love which God had for us in salvation. It is a purifying love, a purifying love whereby He makes us holy. We are separated from sin unto good works for the glory of God and truth. And truth is defined by what God says in His Word. We don't have the luxury of determining what truth is or not. Truth is what is in here. Amen? The Word of God. Gospel motivated love is self sacrificial. It desires the best for others. It doesn't exploit others, as our culture says. It is service oriented. And no one modeled this more for us than our Lord Jesus Christ. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And that is what Jesus did. Amen? Laying down his life for us. And we, beloved, live out love for one another and laying our life for one another and serving one another. Love is the distinguishable mark of a believer. Listen to me. It's the dominant virtue of the believer. In Galatians 5.22, love is the first virtue on the list of the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, love shows whether you truly belong to God or not. 1 John 4.7 says this, listen, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Our Lord Jesus spoke of the importance of love to those who truly profess to be His followers. He said this to His disciples in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And in contrast to worldly love, which is so often emotional or feelings-oriented... Christian love, beloved, is, is expressed in action. It does engage the emotions and everything else, but it expresses itself in action, does it not? Genuine faith shows itself in meeting the needs of people. If you are a loving person, then you are a service-oriented person, and you should be all over the place caring for the needs of people. It must show itself in the way that you invest your time and your resources if you are truly a loving person. 1 John 3.17 says this, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Our love must show itself in actions, right? And listen to me. Love is our Christian duty. It's our Christian responsibility as an expression of the love that God has displayed for us. We owe one another, beloved, to love one another. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. 1 John three twenty three: This is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's faith, right? And love one another just as He commanded us. So faith and express love are interrelated, are they not? And like I said, the ultimate motivation is what God has done for us. Listen to 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And He modeled that in John 13, washing the disciples' feet, the eternal Son of God, stooping them to love them to the max, By serving them and washing their feet. And he said to his disciples, You should do the same. Love one another that way. Serve one another that way. See, Paul gives thanks to God the Father because of the amazing, transforming power of the gospel in their hearts and lives. Because of their faith and because of their love. And we're going to see because of their hope as well. The only reason why... A person changes to be a loving person like that, genuinely, authentically, selflessly beloved, is because of the power of the gospel in their life. Amen? That's why. A few years ago, we managed an apartment complex. And in this apartment complex, a tenant lived there. Big man. Big man who was just huge. He was a former bouncer. He was a former bodyguard. He was a hateful man before, as he would share his testimony with me in his past. I mean, the guy could palm me with his hand, okay? That's how big and strong he was. For years, he ridiculed his believing brother for his faith in Christ. Uh, his brother was a, was a believer, and he was a fireman. And then, one, uh, at one point, there was a huge fire, and his brother, who was a fireman, died in that fire. And, prov- and God's providence... This scary looking man who would ridicule his brother for his faith over so many years and God's providence to do his brother's tragic death was saved. He was saved. And I remember him in the apartment complex. He was a lover of people. But when he described himself to me before, it was like, what in the world? How could this be this, this huge guy? He is so kind now. And he had his own struggles. He struggled just like everybody else with relationships. But he was so forgiving and he would come and he was so merciful and he would ask forgiveness when he was wronged or he, was, he would wrong somebody else. How does that happen, beloved? It happens because of the transforming, glorious, powerful gospel, does it not? That changes people from the inside out so that they're no longer the same. They have a collision with Christ and they're never, ever the same. That's how this man became a loving man. Listen to this quote by William Hendrickson. Quote, The same magnet, Christ Jesus, who attracts sinners to himself and changes them into saints, simultaneously draws them closer into closer fellowship with each other. Thus, ideally speaking, every believer enshrines his fellow believers wherever they may dwell and of whatever race they may be in his heart. End quote. That, is gospel-transforming love. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your glorious gospel. We thank You, Father, that You initiated from before the foundation of the world redemption in and through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that You fulfilled Your promises by sending Him into the world to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, in our place, to rise from the dead so that we may have hope someday, Lord, of being resurrected and reign with Him and enjoy His delightful presence forever. We thank You for that, Lord. We thank You for the fact that You have changed us, that You have transformed us by the power of the gospel. Help us to be thankful people who express thanksgiving continually, Lord, for the faith that You have brought about in our hearts and lives to be able to turn away from the passing pleasures of sin, Lord, and to turn to Christ, the beloved. Thank you. Thank you for faith. Thank you that you allow us by your indwelling spirit to be able to display love for one another. Help us to be people who are driven not by the culture's conception of love, but by a genuine, authentic, Christ-like kind of love. And we pray all of these things, Lord, in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.